And welcome back to another episode of Millennial Manhood. I'm your host, Yavitz Churchovich. Today, I've got Dr. Gleb Sikorsky with me. Dr. Gleb, give uh, the folks listening a 10,000-foot view of who you are and what you do. Thank you for inviting me on, Yavika. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, I'm the guy who you wish you would have met when you were younger. <laughs> okay. I, that's, I have heard so many people say that because I'm the expert in helping people avoid disasters in business and finances in other areas having to do with money, careers, choices. My expertise is in decision-making. The way that we as human beings make decisions, it actually, frankly, sucks. People are told to go with their gut, and that's terrible advice. We should not simply trust our gut, which is the typical way of decision-making. And when people hear what they have to say, they're like, oh, Gosh, I really w- wish I knew when I knew you younger. I knew you when I was younger, so I wouldn't have done this or that or that stupid thing. <laughs> so that's uh, my background. Now, who I am? I am a consultant, coach, trainer, speaker, author, expert, scientist in decision making. I teach people how to make better decisions and how to avoid decision disasters. I work with businesses, nonprofits professionals of all sorts, coaching, consulting, speaking, and training. I also, And I've been doing that for over 20 years. I also have about 15 years of experience as an academic researching cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics. Cognitive neuroscience is the study of how our brain works, how the structure of our brain, all the, you know, the, everything that you hear about, the amygdala, the frontal cortex, all of that stuff, how it causes us to behave in certain ways, why we behave in certain ways, why we think in certain ways, why we feel in certain ways. So I study specifically the area of cognitive neuroscience that has to do with how we make our decisions, and especially the behavioral economics part of it, how we behave in economic situations. So that's kind of a very broad view of what I do. Now, I published a book called Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, which brings together all of that research into one concrete book, as well as all of my experience for over 20 years studying and coaching and consulting with folks on these topics. I'm a thought leader I published in venues. I published over 550 articles in venues like Psychology Day, CNBC, Fast Company, Inc. Magazine, Huffington Post, Daily News, other many other venues like this like these and had a whole bunch of interviews over 450 on venues like NPR, CBS News and so on. I can go in depth serious XM and so that's kind of my background that's what I do and like I said I'm the guy you wish you would have met when you were younger. All right so you I mean you're making the economics nerd and me go crazy. So, uh, because, you know, I, I studied economics in college. That's what was, that's what was the focus, um, my, of my major and I'm the son of an economist. So everything within economics assumes that human beings are rational actors. Everything's about opportunity cost, about making choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said a key thing there. You said we as human beings, quite frankly, suck at making decisions. Why is that? Well, because how our decisions are made. That way that we make decisions, we feel that we are rational beings. That's what we feel. We feel ourselves to be rational, logical, completely not the case. 
actually the research shows that about 80 to 90 percent of our intuitive decision making when we just go forward and make decisions is emotional it comes from how we feel not from what we think otherwise marketing and sales wouldn't have any impact right if we were just rational completely rational human beings you know so sales and marketing is very effective in actually influencing people to buy whatever stuff they buy really irrational decision making now if people were and it happens at all levels. It doesn't happen only with shopping. If people were rational decision making decision makers, do you think the Boeing disaster would have occurred? <laughs> that was yeah. such a rational decision making. I mean, right now the Boeing has lost over twenty billion dollars. Now that's twenty billion, not million, billion dollars as a result of the crash of the crashes of the seven thirty seven Max. Way, way more money than it could have gotten if it if it just delayed and fixed all the problems for six more months before releasing the 737 Max. Completely irrational decision making. Very very not smart. And we can see that okay, it happens at the top levels of leadership. Let's take another example. Not recent, you know, historical example. That's not quite so recent. Let's go to the 2000. Let's go to dot com boom and bust when companies like Enron. And WorldCom and Tyco used fraudulent accounting methods. The leaders of those, Bernie Ebers and so on, used fraudulent accounting methods to hide their losses. So what did they get from it? They got maybe a year or two of you know, bonuses, right? But yeah. then they spent the re- for what, 15 years in jail and a lot of the money was clawed back? Completely irrational decision making harmed so many people. I mean, Enron collapsed and so on. Terrible, terrible decision-making. And where does that come from? That comes from emotions. That comes from our feelings. And that is how who we are. We are overwhelmingly, the research shows, emotional creatures. We go forward with our intuitions, with our gut reactions. We make decisions with our, how we feel. And then we go back and we rationalize it with logic. We then... We feel like we want to buy something. We feel like we want to you know, hide losses. And then after that, we try to rationalize logic ourselves into it. That's, so that's the way that we make decisions when we go with our gut, which is how the vast majority of people make decisions and which is what the business gurus tell us is the right way of making decisions. Actually, terrible way of making decisions, but that's what people tell us. Unfortunately, our gut is not adapted to the modern environment. We can talk about that. And this is why we make such terrible decisions. We're not adapted to make decisions in the modern business environment. Okay. Elaborate on that. That sounds fascinating because as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, obviously one of the common tropes is, you know, your prefrontal cortex isn't even fully developed until you're 25 yet. You know, all these all these crazy decisions can be made. You can sign up for the military, you can vote, you can drink and you're doing damage to your to your body that you can't really fix. Um, but but let's talk about what you said there specifically, your gut not being evolved for the for the environment that we live in. So, so sure. what do you mean by that? It's not it's not even so much the prefrontal cortex not developing by 25. People make lots of dumb decisions after they're 25 as well. Let's be true, honest. True. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so just to be just to be very clear, it's not only about young people. Now, our gut reactions, what the recent research on this topic has shown, is that they're evolved for the ancestral savanna environment, 
when we were hunters and foragers living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people. That's what our gut reactions are developed for. So what does that mean in business situations? Well, there are a number of whole, whole number of problems. Uh, one series of problems comes from tribalism. So we are very tribalist intuitively, naturally as human beings. We like other people who look like us who think like us, who have our values. And we intuitively don't like those who don't, who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who don't have our values, our preferences, and so on. And in the tribal environment, that made a lot of sense. It was very important for us to like other people who are part of our tribe in order to keep the tribe together, because if the tribe fell apart, it would die. And also it was important for us to stay a part of the tribe. If we were kicked out, we would die. And it was also important for us to dislike other people who weren't part of our tribe because we had to oppose hostile tribal members intuitively very quickly. So that was very important in the tribal environment. Think about the current environment. When you look at people who are different than you, well, in the multicultural business environment, this globalized business environment where we're working in very complex organizations of very many people, well, you can't really survive and thrive if you specifically don't if you dislike and can't collaborate effectively with people who don't share your values who don't look like you and so on so we make terrible decisions all the time based on this tribalism in the modern business environment that's one aspect of things now the other aspect of things from the tribal environment is the fight or flight response it was very important for our ancestors to have a very strong fight or flight response they need to jump at a hundred shadows in order to flee successfully from that one saber-toothed tiger or to fight mm -hmm. against an attacking tribal member. And so we are the descendants of those people who are very tribal and who had a very strong fight-or-flight response. But you might notice that there are many less saber-toothed tigers in the modern world. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. <laughs> <None>. <laughs> <we> still, <laughs> exactly. And we still respond to you know nasty emails at work as though they're saber-toothed tigers. We have extensive stress response, and we're very tempted to write back an email very quickly responding, what are you saying, you know, blah, 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 <laughs> and so on. You know, I was working for uh, one company that does real estate management, and it was well, a pretty sizable company. It had 600 employees. It has 600 employees. And uh, I was working with the, the the teamwork issues between the accounting department and the sales department. And they had a lot of trouble. So when the sale, when the account, when the sales department wanted to accommodate customers who wanted their finances to appear in a different way, the accounting department wouldn't hear it. And they were very strict. They were very intolerant of any changes to accommodate customers. So it was very much of a conflict between company policy and what the customer needs, you know, customer-driven approaches. And they actually sent quite a lot of nasty emails to each other. And it kind of escalated, exacerbated, and so on, had to go to the level of the CEO. And that was a classical example of fight-or-flight response where they es escalated these responses. They all had fight response to each other. And then that caused them a lot of trouble working together as part of a team. So that's an example. And there are many other examples where fight response leads us into a lot of trouble in the modern business environment. And in the modern, I mean, it also leads to a lot of trouble in investing. So think about, there was a really interesting study done by a, a huge bank, which I won't name, which looked at its accounts, uh, financial investment accounts, in the stock market and so on. And it looked at which people did the best in the stock market. And it found that there were two categories of people who did the best in the stock market. One, 
uh, of its accounts. One, people who died. Two, <laughs> people who forgot they had their account. <laughs> yep. Yep. Be- it, and that's what happened because the fight or flight response is very, very bad for the financial for financial markets. People react very quickly and not smartly when and they re, and that results in selling low and buying high when you should be doing the opposite because our instincts our intuitions is to you know sell when stock our stocks are going down and buy when stocks are going up that's a bad bad strategy if you actually want to succeed in the stock market <laughs> And yes. we need to go against your intuitions if you want to succeed in the stock market. Just like you need to go against your intuitions if you want to succeed in a modern business environment. If your boss is giving you constructive critical feedback, our intuition is to reject it, to say, no, we're awesome, I'm great, how can you say that? <laughs> and that's yeah. not good if you want to actually survive and thrive in your job. You need to be able to incorporate that feedback and then perform better in the future. That's the behavior that will get you up the career ladder in your job, or if you're a solopreneur or entrepreneur, you need to get that same feedback from customers and change your products and your strategies based on that. However, that's not the intuitive thing to do with a fight or flight response. So these are just some examples of situations where our gut reactions, which are not adapted for the modern environment, lead us in exactly the wrong direction in the modern business environment. It's so interesting because as a financial advisor, you know, what you talked about, the uh, it's it, the b- behavioral aspect of being a financial advisor. Um, you know, it was, I don't think it was the same study that you're quoting, but Vanguard did a study uh, around indices and how individuals actually performed in their portfolios. And there's about a 7% gap in between what the market does over a 20 year period and what the average investor gets because mm. of the emotional behavior. Uh, it's completely irrational. Um, one of the things that I've done though, um, switching topics a little bit to what you mentioned about the emails, because I know how people struggle. And I'm curious to see what you think about this. Something I've implemented in my practice um, with my cohort, like people in my firm and, and my clients, um, I have an out of, out of office email response that goes off every single day to every single email. And it basically says, hey, Gleb, thanks for emailing me. Um, due to workload and, and working to give my clients the uh, uh, most amount of attention uh, possible. I only check emails once a day at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. If it is an emergency, parentheses, please make sure it's an emergency. Feel free to call me at, I give my cell phone number, uh, or my assistant at give the number. Um, and then otherwise, I will reach back out to you after 4 p.m. today. And it has made my life exponentially easier. Hmm. I mean, through the roof. I don't, because every email that comes in, for some reason, I realized I was telling my wife, I feel like every email that comes in, I feel like it's an emergency. And it's yeah. not true. They're not. <laughs> if it is an emergency, call me. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's made my life so much easier. And then the other thing that I've done is anytime, especially when a client sends me an email about something they're pissed off about, uh, I type out a response email and then I delete it. Mm. I, w- I will <laughs> never send, or if, if somebody else emails me and, and there's some sort of confrontation, I, I type out a response email and then I delete it. I never send the first email uh, that I type out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, these are smart strategies because you, what you're doing is you're basically creating behaviors that are completely not intuitive. I mean, it's not intuitive to send out to, to have the away email saying, I only check my messages once a day and you know, call me if it's an emergency. And it's not intuitive to delete the first email. These are, this is what I'm talking about here. You're, 
one of the things that we need to do is develop healthy mental habits that go against our intuitions and that help us survive and thrive in the modern environment. Now, a lot of the listeners will have already developed healthy mental habits that they may not realize they developed or they may not realize have to do with their evolutionary background. Here's an example. Let's talk about physical health. Now, in the savanna environment, when you came across a source of sugar, like let's say, you know, bananas or citrus or whatnot, it was very important for you to eat as much of it as possible because that's how you survived. You, you got lots of sugar, you got lots of resources. That's great. In the modern environment, we have way too much sugar for you yep. to actually survive and thrive if you if you eat in the if you eat as much as possible. So you know, if you just get a box of dozen donuts, which is the standard size of donuts boxes, and you actually eat all of it, that will be pretty terrible for your health. This is why we have the obesity epidemic here. And hopefully, you by now have looked at the research and medicine, and you know that it will be really bad for your health if you eat a box of dozen donuts. You know, one's okay. Two, maybe, you know, you gotta stop it at the third donut. <laughs> you yeah. gotta stop it at the third donut. You've learned that. And hopefully if a doctor tells you, you know, eat a, eat a box of dozen donuts, you'd fire the doctor. You wouldn't work with the doctor because you know that that's not the right advice. Similarly, physical health in terms of exercise. You've learned that even though it feels very nice to sit on the couch and watch Netflix all day, it's very intuitive and comfortable. It's important to put on your sweats and go to the gym for like half an hour a day or longer, or at least go take a walk for half an hour a day. That's really important for you to do that for the sake of your physical health. So for it's counterintuitive, but that's what you found. Now, this has been the result of over a 100 years of medical research showing how do we need to manage our eating and how do we need to manage our exercise because in the savanna environment, exercise was a bad idea. You need to conserve all the energy possible for, until you actually go and hunt or forage or whatnot. So it goes against your intuitions to do physical exercise, goes against your intuitions to manage your eating of sugar, but you've hopefully learned that for the sake of physical health. Now, if you look back over 100 years ago, when doc what were doctors advising? They weren't advising that you go do physical exercise and <laughs> limit your amount of donuts. They were advising that you drink what's called snake oil, which is a combination of cocaine, alcohol, and sugar. Now, that is actually where Coca-Cola came from, Co the name of Coca-Cola, cocaine, alcohol, and sugar. That's what it used to be made out of. Now it only has sugar because, you know, cocaine, <laughs> alcohol. <laughs> lots and lots of sugar. Yes, lots and lots of sugar, but you know, so at least it doesn't have the cocaine and alcohol. But in that time, that it made you feel good to have the cocaine and alcohol. That's the snake oil. That, that's that's where the phrase snake oil. But it was it hid the symptoms. It didn't actually cure the it it hid the symptoms, but it didn't cure the underlying problems. So right now we're only getting to the cutting edge. Right now, you know, the brain is much more complex to study than the body. So only right now are we learning, is the research coming forward on what we need to do to have good mental fitness. And that research shows that go with your gut, which a lot of gurus, like a lot of doctors who are very prominent and sold snake oil, they were making a lot of money because they gave yeah. people what they liked. And right now, the business gurus and other gurus, you know, Tony Robbins of the world who say be primal and be savage, they tell people – that 
you should do what you feel is right. You should do what's in your gut. You should do what goes along with your intuition, all of these things. And that's what people do. And they buy this stuff because it makes them feel good. It makes you feel good to say, you know, do what you feel is right. Do what you feel you should do. It's It feels good. It feels comfortable. And that's the comfort. Comfort is what is the feeling of intuitive. It's what the feeling, it's what you feel good about. And they, people who tell you to do what you feel good about, they're going to get the big bucks. And they are doing the snake oil of advice on decision making. They're the ones who are getting the money. This is not what is actually the the right thing for you to do. But unfortunately, people do what they feel is good for them rather than going outside of their comfort zone and doing the hard but counterintuitive things that are necessary for them to survive and thrive in the modern environment. So, So do you spend a lot of time, I know we've talked about some of the major inefficient decision makers like Enron, which is a once in a lifetime, mon- basically monstrosity of, of a fraud <laughs> that happened um, where, you know, the crazy crap they were doing, like rolling blackouts throughout California, it took Arthur Anderson down and all these other major companies. You know, yes. that's a, that's a, that's one extreme example in the business world, but let's just take it to individuals. Cause really what you're, and maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're saying, but really what you're doing is you're, you're really talking to people about cultivating positive habits that help them make decisions um, be, because you're taking a lot of the resistance out of the equation. Um, you know, something as simple as, you know, getting a dog. So you go ex- exercise, mm-hmm. you know, you having to go take your dog for a walk or for a run forces you to get the exercise in that you might not get because you'd be sitting on the couch watching Netflix and, and chilling. Yes. So that's a good analogy where what I'm talking about is, you need to take mental fitness just as seriously as you take physical fitness. And people yeah. don't. They, again, they, they do the eat a dozen donuts and sit on the couch all day of mental fitness advice. And they don't exercise their mind. They don't go outside of their comfort zone. They go with what they feel is right. And what they feel is right is actually very wrong often. And so that's the very big danger. So the Enron is a consequence of a whole series of bad decisions that led to that. And I have to say, uh, in my work in the business environment, I see a lot of smaller Enrons. I see a lot of people who do some pretty shady things. I mean, if you look at Bernie Evers, if you look at the leadership of Enron, why did they use fraudulent accounting methods? Well, from what we look at and what we know right now, it was part it was a result of tribalism where the tribal aspect of trying to get to the top of the tribal hierarchy that was very important to survive and thrive and spread your genes we're the descendants of those who were very successful at getting to the top of the tribal hierarchy and spreading their genes apparently about 5% of the world's population has the genes of genghis khan for example great con- world conqueror right so yeah. <laughs> this is what we have to fight, deal with, Bernie Ebers didn't want to let go of his high position and acknowledge, you know, that he failed, that the comp- Enron was a failure, that he's a failure because of all the losses. And so many business leaders right now, I mean, I see people, I work in the business world, I see a lot of people making horrible decisions because they don't want to lose status. They don't want to lose social status. So they keep going for the short-term gains at the expense of much higher long-term pain. 
And this is a huge problem in the business world. I mean, so many people make terrible decisions because of this short-term orientation. And that's exactly what Bernie Ebers did. That's what Enron was. That's what Tyco was. That's what WorldCom was. And so many others. I mean, Boeing had the same issue, too. They went for the short-term gain of cutting corners on safety and look at the kind of pain that that brought in the end. So... This is a broader, big, much bigger problem. And this is only one subset of problems within our minds that is the going for short-term gains. Because our emotions very much push for us to go for short-term gains of eating sugar as opposed to, you know, the long-term gains of doing physical exercise and having fitness. Same thing, go the short-term gains of having a small reward now at the risk of much higher pain later. We are very much more likely to go for the short-term reward right now just because of the way our brain is wired. So what would you encourage just individual folks? You know, if if somebody's looking to ha- take charge of their mental health the same way that they're trying to take charge of their physical health, what are some tangible things that, folks can do. Also, a, a side question, uh, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on um, the increase of anxiety and anxiety medication and things like that in our society and how that correlates with that, um, you know, primal need as well, if it does. Mm-hmm. Yes. So for the first one, what you need to do is learn about the specific dangerous judgment errors that our brain tends to make. And they're called cognitive biases. So this is the area in which my expertise lies. Cognitive biases are the specific errors that we make because of how our mind is wired. In my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions to Avoid Business Disasters, goes for the 30 most dangerous cognitive biases in the professional world. Whether you're a business owner, whether you care about your career and you're managing your own career, whether you want to manage your finances, that's what it's about. So if there's an assessment in the last chapter, chapter seven, that goes through all the behaviors associated with problematic decision making. So the first question asks, within your workplace over the first, over the last year, what percentage of projects went over time or over budget? And whenever I ask that in one of my trainings, I get answers ranging, you know, from 5% to last time I asked it, 98%. <laughs> you know, if it's 5%, it's not a big deal, you know, 5%, 10%, whatever. If you are at the 98% level, that's a huge deal. That means you're misappropriating money. You're investing money in one area, you're investing time in one area, and you don't have time and money for other projects that you would like to do. And that's bad for organization, that's bad for individual that's bad for everyone. So you really want to know which of these cognitive biases you are most prone to and how you can specifically address these cognitive biases. And the book talks about specific strategies to address them, and I can talk them through here. So again, there are 30 most dangerous ones for businesses and careers. There are over 100 of them altogether, and you can check it out, look Google for a list of cognitive biases. So that's first. Now, there are also specific strategies that are described in the book that you can use to address a whole bunch of cognitive biases at once. One, a quick strategy, five questions to avoid decision disasters, and for everyday everyday decisions that you don't want to screw up. And one, an eight-step strategy, more in-depth, for making the best decisions, which you want to use for more serious decisions that you want to maximize. Whether you're buying a house, you're hiring someone for a key hire, you're changing careers, whatever you want to do, you want to use that strategy. 
So that's kind of the, and we can, I can talk those through as well. Now, regarding the anxiety, I think that has much more, to, that has really to do with the overwhelmness of information that is flooding our society right now. And people, like I said, nasty emails result in us having a very strong stress response. And all sorts of negative information, negative stimuli, result in us having a very strong stress response. And stress, of course, is the result of anxiety, of a perception of threat. So we have way too much perception of threat as a result of having way more information than we used to. And mm. that's that's why people are dealing with much more anxiety than they used to, because we are facing, we're an information society, and we are dealing with this information society with brains that have evolved for the savanna environment. And so if you don't know how to effectively, if you don't have these decision-making filters that I talk about in the book, you will, of course, have extensive anxiety because you will be overreacting to information that you're dealing with instead of dealing with this information in a healthy way. That's so interesting with the you know, I've thought about before about the information overload, but I've never thought about having a process to digest that information and then make decisions based off of it to avoid the anxiety aspect of it. Because, I mean, you're right. A lot of the information that we're getting, it, it, let's use let's use the uh, the the root of all evil, evil Twitter. Okay, <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> you know, and I and I talked about this in a, in a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago. If I if I were walking down the street. And some crazy person recognized me and said something really insulting to me that's very personal. Like, I hate Serbs. That was the example I used. Mm. I, would, I would look at them like they were insane, and I would say, good job, buddy. Have a nice life, and keep walking. But, <laughs> but, the, but the moment some nobody says something like that on Twitter, I'm pissed off all, all the time. Mm. And, and, and I'm sitting here like, there's no difference between this person on Twitter and some random person on the street doing it, neither one of them matters to my life, even yeah. remotely. So why am I getting so much more of a visceral response? And and I use the I have hate Serbs example as just something something that would be really personal. If somebody said something like that, that's just unnecessarily bigoted. Um, yeah. But yeah, if I, if I saw somebody in, in person do that, I would think they're insane. But yet you put an at in front of some username and all of a sudden it's gospel. Yes. Yep. Now that's, that's in a clear and classical example of what I'm talking about here, information overload. And the thing is, what people don't realize, and the fundamental thing that they have to realize, is that the only things in life they can control, and I talk about this in the book, and how to control it, are our thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. Those are the only things in life that are under your control. You can't control what other people say on Twitter. You can't control that. You can't control what other people say in the street. But you, you especially can't control what they say on Twitter. And because, you know, they, they're not like they are in front of you. And they are much more willing to troll you because you really don't have an effective way of responding to them. And it's also a dehumanized element. You know, on the street, they can see you. They can see your reactions. They can be afraid that you'll punch them in the face. On Twitter, they are not going to be afraid of these things. And that's why you have so many more trolls online than in real life. And so you need to realize that the only things you can control are your thoughts, your behaviors, your feelings, the way that you respond to these internal stimuli. And then you can manage your decisions about how you respond. So having a clear decision-making process for how you respond to these external stimuli is fundamentally important. Otherwise, again, you're going to be reacting to these 
21st century information economy overload with a Savannah brain, with a Savannah gut reaction. And that's that visceral response that you're talking about. It's very unhealthy for the modern world. It causes a great deal of stress, anxiety, various negative phenomena that really damage you as an individual and our society as a whole. And that's why it's very important to learn how to make good decisions about these external stimuli as opposed to simply responding and reacting, which is what the vast majority of people do. So so let's use that second decision-making process that you talked about, the eight-step one, where if you're buying a house or choosing where to go to college or, I don't know, whether you want to move halfway across the country, major decisions. What is that actual process? What are those? And obviously read the book, folks. The, the link will be in the in the description on how to get it. But just, you know, the 10,000-foot view of, of the eight-step process, um, sure. how would you go about that? So the first thing you want to do is realize you need to make a decision. And that's there, it, that applies – it's a surprising aspect of the step whenever people – whenever I tell people that. But so many people don't realize a decision needs to be made. For example, a lot of people stay in a dead-end job – much longer than they should. I was just having a coaching meeting just before this conversation with someone who is kind of at a dead-end job, who whose other people are getting promoted above her, and she's not really having an opportunity to move up that she deserves, and she's performing really well, partially because of her environment, and there's a glass ceiling issue. And she's not really willing to understand and make the decision to actually make the next step. Okay, you know, what will it be like if you're here in 10 years? What will it be like even in five years? How do you imagine yourself in five years? And when I said that, kind of looking at this long-term perspective, she realized obviously she doesn't want to be in the situation in five more years. But if she just let herself live her life and go forward, then she would be in exactly the same situation in five years. Because we just don't look forward. We just go through what's next, you know, what's the next week, what's the next month. We don't take that five-year perspective, and we miss opportunities to make decisions when you miss the time when a decision needs to be made. So that's one really important thing for you to realize. When is it the time for you to make the decision, whether it's for a career switch, whether it's time to open a new business, whether it's time, if you're a business owner, to launch a new product, whatever it is to do. You know, what do you need to do? Make Realize you need to make the decision. Next, gather relevant information from a variety of informed perspectives about the issue at hand. You want to especially look for people who disagree with your perspective. You Because our tendency, our intuition, is to look for information that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. It's called the confirmation bias, one of the many cognitive biases from which we suffer. So you want to look for information from people who don't have your perspectives. You don't necessarily need to go with their information, but you need to look for them. I'll give you an example for myself. One of my worst cognitive biases that I suffer from is called the optimism bias. So I tend to be very optimistic. I tend to think that grass is green on the other side of the hill, whereas it's too often yellow. <laughs> you know, I tend to have, be risk blind and I tend to have too high expectations. So I know that about myself. And when I have a major decision to be made, I make sure to run my major decision by someone who is pessimistic, someone who has the opposite bias. It's called the pessimism bias. These are on a spectrum. So somebody who tends to be risk averse, somebody who tends to be Oh, somebody who tends to have too low expectations about the future. Someone who thinks the grass is always yellow on the other side of the hill, hill even if 
if it's green sometimes. So I make sure to get their feedback. So that's an example. So you want to make sure for, to get feedback from people who don't share your perspectives. Next, decide on the goals you want to reach and paint a clear vision of the desired outcome. So for the person I was coaching, I had her paint a clear vision of the desired outcome that she wanted in five years from now. And that really helped her realize that she's not currently going toward the desired outcome. So you want to make sure that you understand what you want to reach and have a clear vision of that and then plan backward from that clear vision from the goals into the few, into the present. Next, develop clear decision making criteria to evaluate options. So if you want to, let's say you're, you're trying to get a new job. You want to develop criteria for that new job. You want to develop criteria like, uh, you want to be surrounded by people who aren't jerks, you know, so having a nice atmosphere in this new job. You want to have, you know, obviously good salary. You want to have fit. You want to make sure that you grow professionally in this job, in your skill set, whatever. So those are just three criteria. There are many more. And you want to weigh the criteria. How important is it that people aren't jerks and you have a nice atmosphere compared to the salary that you're getting, compared to your professional growth? You know, maybe you want to rate, you want to rate them, maybe rate it on a scale of one to 10 with one low and 10 high. You say seven for atmosphere, you know, five for salary and nine for professional growth. If your professional growth is the most important thing to you. And many people right now are specifically mostly highly prioritizing their skill growth because they know that's the way to go get forward in the future. Next, generate viable options that can achieve your goals. This is very important. A lot of people tend to settle for the first viable option. So when they, you know, mm. when they're looking for, let's say, a place to move to or a job, a potential job or opening up a new business or whatever they want to do, they tend to settle for the first viable options that they hit. That's a very bad idea for a long, for a deep, for a major decision because you get a lot more outcomes, benefits down the line in the long term if you have a few options and you can compare them because, again, of the outcomes. So it will take you not much time at all to come up with new, with more options, you know, maybe half an hour more, maybe an hour more, maybe even a day more. But it will be very much worth it in the long term if you do so. Next, weigh these options using the criteria you selected and pick the best of the bunch. So some some of the jobs will be better in atmosphere, some in professional growth, some on money. Weigh them according to your criteria. See which ones are most important to you in according to the criteria and then choose one that makes the most sense. Next, implement the option you chose. When you implement, there are two things you want to do, two things as part of the seventh step. First, imagine that your decision completely and utterly failed. Again, the decision completely failed, your goal of getting a new job, you know, the new job you found completely failed and so on. Why did it fail? Maybe you thought it was a good atmosphere, but then once you got in there, you realized that it was a toxic atmosphere for some reason. So then maybe in that case, you want to do a little bit more research on the atmosphere before you get there. And so you can do this on any sort of decision. Also, the second step of this question of this pro, uh, the second part of the step is imagine that it succeeded beyond your wildest dreams. You know, this is a completely awesome job, really, truly great. Why did it succeed? Maybe it succeeded because you found a mentor in this new job very quickly. So make sure you integrate the steps for success and failure, avoiding failure, maximizing success into your plan for implementation. 
Finally, evaluate the implementation process and revise it as needed. You want to make sure you have very clear metrics of success. So have metrics of success for your decision. For, for example, let's go again with a job. So if you're looking for a new job and your metrics of success, one of the things that's really important for you is career growth. Have a metric of success of in six months, I will have learned these new skills and I will be promoted to the next level, for example, in that position. If you don't learn these new skills and if you aren't promoted to that next level, that should cause you a very serious reconsideration of where you are. And even before your, your six months is up, you can measure whether you're learning the skills and what the likelihood is of you being promoted to that next level within the position that, you, that you're hired. So make sure you have metrics and you're evaluating always the decision against those metrics so that you can revise the decision as needed along the metrics. And that doesn't mean you have to leave this new job that you got. That can mean that you go to your mentor, you go to your supervisor and say, hey, I would really like to be learning these new skills. Can you can we make sure that my work is aligned more with learning these new skills? So you can change things around without making a drastic change, but you want to make sure that you are implementing the decision in accordance with your metrics. Wow. Well, that's definitely a very, uh, very intense decision-making process that most people are not going through. It's, uh, but at, you know, as you're talking through it, I'm thinking, I'm like, man, you know, I'm that eternal optimist. I, I what other biases am I allowing to basically dictate my life? Um, mm. So it was, it was, it was definitely interesting just thinking through it as you're talking about it. But um, I know, I know we're running up on time here, so I, w- I want to make sure that you know I get to my question that I always end every episode with. But if if we go back to 18-year-old you, you know, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, um, got the whole world ahead of you, knowing all that you know at this stage of your life and knowing all that you know about yourself, if you could go back to 18-year-old you and tell, tell him one thing, what would that one thing be? It would be to make sure to have greater emotional awareness because our emotions drive our decisions in very deep ways. Again, about 80-90% of our decision-making is emotional. And honestly, 18-year-old me had no idea about that and was being driven by his emotions to make some stupid decisions. So if my 18-year-old me had greater emotional awareness and self-management, my 18-year-old me would have been much better off. So that's what I would tell my 18-year-old self, to really focus much more on getting awareness of my emotions and ability to manage my emotions in order to make the best decisions and achieve my goals. That's fantastic advice. I feel like you could do, say that to any 18-year-old. <laughs> you know, get, 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 get a control over that and, and make better decisions. Well, um, no, this was awesome. I, I wish we had more time, but man, I, I've, it, it's just as you're talking, I'm thinking through just all these different scenarios. Um, for the folks listening, where can they get your book? Where can they learn more about your work? Where, where, where can we learn more about Dr. Gleb? Sure. So my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions to Avoid Business Disasters, is available in bookstores everywhere, physical and online. It's published by a great traditional publisher called Career Press. So it's going to be in your bo- local Barnes & Noble, university bookstores, indie bookstores everywhere. And, of course, online on Amazon, again, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, whatever you get your books. You can check out my work on my website called DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. Again, DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. There will be blogs, videos, podcasts, manuals, assessments, decision aids, also training, consulting, and coaching services. And make sure to check out DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com forward slash subscribe. 
for a free eight video-based module course. So eight video-based modules course on wise decision-making, wise decision-making 101, the wise decision-maker course, that's the name. Check it out on disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. And finally, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. So if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, please connect with me there. Ask me any questions and we'll be connected. So Gleb Cipurski, Dr. Gleb Cipurski, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Gleb, thank you for coming on. This was awesome. Um, I, I really think this will help a lot of people. And obviously, go to his website, connect with him on LinkedIn, check out his book. I'll have all the uh, links and everything in the show notes. So you can just click it in the show notes, wherever you listen to it, iTunes, Spotify, etc. cetera. Um, on our end with Millennial Manhood, um, as always, if you've got any questions, comments, uh, criticism, remember, it's got to be constructive criticism. Don't just complain. you got to offer a solution. You can email us at info at mmcip.co, info at mmcip.co. You can also go to millennial.manhood.com, or sorry, millennial-manhood.com if you want to get in touch with us or just check out the blog posts and the podcast. But outside of that, uh, Dr. Gleb, thanks for coming on, and we'll talk to you guys soon.